Welcome to On the Continent, your one-stop shop for all things European football. I'm Dotson Adebayo. I'm Andy Brassel. And I'm Miguel Delaney. And on today's show, we assess the current situation with Europe's international sides after a load of matches last night. And we also look at continental football's continuing battle with coronavirus after Napoli didn't turn up for their match against Juventus. And how have La Liga's giants ended up so skint? But first, we really ought to talk about the end of the transfer window this week. How was it for you, Miguel? Um, relatively busy, but not as busy as expected. And that's, of course, partly because we've had, I'd say, one of the most lopsided windows in memory and the, the, I suppose the easiest indication of that is the fact that the Premier League spent uh, 1.3 billion total, I think it was 900 million or there, thereabouts net spend, while if you combine every other league in Europe, it's a 2 billion drop. With, I suppose, the biggest illustration of that, the uh, almost complete lack of any sort of compelling signings in well at the top two in Spain, uh, which I suppose is reflective of the health of the league and, and also reflective of the wider situation. And yeah, it, yeah, that's right, isn't it? And um, <laughs> you talked about it in the in the intro, Dotton, about why why are they so skinned. I, I mean, I think you can look at all of Barcelona, Real Madrid, and Atletico because Real Madrid, hmm. of course, you have got to start with them, the champions. Don't sign a player in a summer window for the first time since 1980. But that's not even the headline. You know, you look at the fact that Barcelona and Atletico on transfer deadline day, and if you look at Barcelona, particularly in, in better years, they don't like to leave business to the last minute. They habitually do nothing in the winter window because the winter window is the last refuge of scroungers and grifters. Yeah. Bad planners. Exactly, bad, yeah. bad planners. But both Barcelona and Atletico... And I think what's going on at Barcelona is actually taking a bit of the heat off, off Atletico. They're trying to shift salary on the final day of the window yeah. so they can get players in. Now, what we've got to clarify here, in case listeners are unaware, is there is a salary cap for each team in Spain. Now, it's not a one-size-fits-all salary cap as you would get in American sport. It's related to your income as a club. But despite the fact that, say... Barcelona had 1 billion euros of revenue last year. They they were still struggling to shift people on the final day. Not so they could sign Lautaro Martinez, so they could sign Memphis Depay, who who is a player in the final year of his contract, who, you know, whether people would say he's a Barcelona player or not, in inverted commas, I think is hardly the point here. The fact that someone that they were going to pay 25 million euros for and a salary that I'm led to believe he was going to be given a five-year contract that he'd agreed several weeks further back, he would have got paid less in his first year at Barcelona than he was getting paid at Lyon because he was so desperate to get there. <laughs> but, 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 and even you, you talked about whether he's a kind of Barcelona player or not, but even this question or you know the fact they've gone from reflect something else about Barcelona in, in for so long um, well there was always actually issues with transfers when, when Chiqui Bigurasan was there and trying to buy for Guardiola but it's kind of a separate issue mm. but for so long at least Barcelona would generally sign as said well in advance and specific types of players 
um, that you know that suited a, a certain approach, whereas rather than the, a certain coach. Yeah, yeah. Whereas, whereas this this feels such a kind of one of those classic circumstantials, almost on the hoof signings, because basically Cumin likes Memphis from working with him with Holland. Well, then why not? Why not sign him? But it's not just Barcelona there. I've got problems, Miguel. In in La Liga, it's also um, Atletico Madrid and Real Madrid, as 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 um, was mentioned a little bit earlier, a moment or two ago by Andy. Why have all these three big teams in Spain coalesced in a way to to have financial problems or whatever it might be? Well, I'd say the biggest issue is ultimately there were already financial issues which had to be looked at and there there were I mean we've mentioned the salary cap but I think the wage turnover ratio for a lot of biggest biggest clubs in Spain was already at a point of concern with that with basically COVID coming at precisely the wrong time uh, and it meant these issues have been not, not least if they've got these huge stadiums to bring in income so that they can well, and, spend a lot more money. And, 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 that, that's huge, actually, yeah, isn't it? And, you know I mean? and this is one of the interesting things as well. This, all this comes at a point when Madrid have been actually pressing ahead with plans to try and renovate the Bernabeu. Mm. Uh, yeah, that's right. Of course, they're, they're still playing at their training ground for goodness sakes they're playing La Liga games at their training ground because they're they're behind closed doors um, but the, the Barcelona thing is extraordinary I know they're everyone's favourite object of rubbernecking in European football at the, at the moment but I think if you look at what's happening with them and this effort to try and sort of procure these marginal gains to try and mm. get small signings in, in the final days of the the, the, the window. I, I mean, they almost set their fans up and not just their fans, but Ronald Koeman more for disappointment. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure the fans could be any more disappointed than they currently are anyway, but set Ronald Koeman up for disappointment to let him know that he, he wasn't going to get Memphis over, over the line in the end. It's the fact that just before the transfer deadline, if you're expecting an announcement from the club, it's a signing announcement, but they're like... Yeah, these are our financial results for, the, for this year. I mean, when your financial results for the year come out like hours before the transfer window shutting, that's not a good sign, is can, it? Can you imagine if you're messy after that? <laughs> given given everything that prefaced this summer. Is that where their problem starts from then? Is that where their problem starts from? from on the one uh, hand, you've got a player of his stature who doesn't want to be there, or at least by all accounts doesn't want to be there, and you don't resolve that over the summer. You've still got his wage bill. And you can't bring anybody else in as a result of that. Well, I mean, without going back into, I suppose, the messy issue, I mean, it's almost the great, what is becoming the great dilemma of possibly the greatest player of all time, where he has such a gravitational effect on your wage bill. And there is the argument that the longer you have Messi there, the harder it actually is to have the full-scale reboot that Barcelona need, because yes. they, they need the space from the money, Well, and he occupies a lot of that. But then, of course, there's the question of getting rid of your greatest player. I mean, that, that, that's a big, that's a, greater issue as well of course but the, the other thing I can't help thinking of I mean for basically the last 12 years we've you know the Barca Barca have basically become the biggest the biggest club in the world and also the basically the highest possible comparison like when we, when we talk about great clubs we talk about Barcelona and the Barca identity and DNA has become kind of you know something everyone's tried to replicate but as true as that has been what has also remained true is what is just as integral to uh, to the Barca identity going back decades is that this club is just incapable of escaping crisis. It always comes back. Yeah. They, they must be, I think more so than any big club, 
the extremes they go, and even if you go back to like the the seventies or the or the or the fifties when they had like their first really great European side under um under under, under Helenio Herrera. At two years of obviously dominating Spain, saw him leave in controversy as Madrid then totted up a European trophy. So it, it, it they've never been, there's always it didn't quite describe it as a Lentorno, basically. That yeah. It's just this swirl that goes around the club all the time. And the, the financial mess is something yeah. that has been there for actually over two decades. Mm. They've, they've kept the wolf from the door yeah. at various points. But a lot of the, 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 the job that previous presidents did, like Joan Laporta, uh, Sandro Rosset, who obviously got himself into, into legal trouble with, 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 with what he was doing there. A, a lot of what happened under the Rijkaard era, for example, which I think most people would think of as the starting point of modern Barcelona. Of course, it's separate from Pep Guardiola Barcelona. But when we think of... Barcelona in the modern era having great players that are envied all over the world and playing good football and winning mm. stuff again you have to go back to that Rijkaard era don't you starting starting in the mid noughties and the fact is that then they were there's never been a bottomless pit for them yeah. because they've always been dealing with these issues but I guess what would take us on to Atletico Madrid here is all been compounded by just absolutely dreadful business in the transfer market. And you look at, say, if we do flip it to Atletico and them trying to create a space where they could sign Cavani or create a space on the last day where they could sign off Lucas Torreira on loan, mm. for goodness sakes. I mean, the, the, the fact is that we still think of them as underdog Atletico, who improbably won the 2014 title in La Liga and improbably got to within a whisker of the Champions League trophy in that same year. The wage bill that they're rocking now compared to the wage bill then, oh my God, it's unbelievable. And there's they're in a similar position, position to Barcelona in the sense that there are quite a few unshiftables on mm. big wages and, and, and Tom Lamar being the big one of those. Of course. Although Atletico managed to shift Thomas Party. I'm not sure if they... Shifted. Not on purpose. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I was, I, was, I was coming on to that as well. So they did some business in any case. They got yes. money coming in the other way rather than going out in, in respect of that. And I wonder whether the, the window that they've got now to replace him is a window that they really want. They've got a 30-day window, haven't they, to replace him with yeah, they, some suitable local, uh, or at least Spanish, re- replacement. Yeah, that's 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 right. They can they can buy someone from La Liga. And it looks like a, a, a bit of... Um, a bit of sunshine is going to fall into their lap because um, the, the, the reports today are that the replacement is going to be Jeffrey Condogbia of Valencia. And of course, Valencia... Uh, in another situation, Miguel, <laughs> I think you would look at this club and say the owner is asset stripping at the moment yeah. because that they are they are giving away their best players, uh, giving away the, I guess their their most expensively paid players. It seems like Condogbia has already agreed terms with Atletico. He's not going to cost market value because. They yeah, just you, simply well, want to get rid well, yeah, of contracts. Yeah, yeah. And when, when you're engaged in a fire sale like that, basically you you don't uh, set anything at market value. It, it's 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 a remarkable situation. And, and quite, so, I mean, I, I was there in in November when they played Chelsea, and there was actually a bit of a sense that Valencia might, despite all the ructions, uh, they might be kind of stabilising a bit. And it's just, I suppose, this has been reflective of the last few years again what the current situation is doing a little bit like Barcelona but even, but more pronounced and to a much more troubling degree I would say it's 
just exposing problems that have been sitting there for about two decades. And with Valencia, exactly. of course, it, go, it goes back to the, the move of the stadium, which still hasn't happened. Um, I mean, basically, it's if you're standing on the edge of a cliff, yeah. you're vulnerable to a gust of wind, aren't yeah, you? That, yeah. that, that's basically what it is. Well, and what was it that Johan Cruyff said? Was it in Turner? El Interno, yeah. It, what, what does that mean? Uh, basically, the storm around the club. Oh, uh, the, the, con- the, the, the constant... Uh... <laughs> Always referred to... Which level. he was only partially responsible yeah, for. Yeah, only partially, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that's a long time the, ago. The, cle- the, draw, the cleansing rain. to draw a line <laughs> underneath that at some point or other. Uh, of these three teams, though, these three big Spanish teams that are struggling in all sorts of ways, off-field, as it were, which of them has got the best hope of coming out of it smelling roses or whatever the Spanish equivalent is? <laughs> I think there's there's an issue in that Real Madrid were very, very good, if you go back a couple of years, to Ozil and Di Maria, of having players that it was no secret they were trying to shift and were yeah. dead weight to them, but managing to shift them for quite a lot of money. That is something that is no longer possible in the current environment. And actually, as Miguel says, it predates COVID. So I think if you look at um, Isco, for example, it's it's just been treading water there for a year and a half and they haven't been able to shift him. Now that is a a, a problem for for Real Madrid. I think Barcelona is maybe even going to get worse before it gets better, even though Bartomeu is is facing a vote of, of no confidence. So he could be gone before March. But I suspect the next board will end up yeah. still paying for a lot yeah. of his his mistakes. So even though Atletico are in this position where they're incredibly reliant on Champions League receipts, if they had even a year outside the Champions League, they'd be in difficulty. Yeah. I, I, I have no doubt about that. I feel that Atletico are almost in the strongest... I wouldn't say they're in a strong position, but they may be in the strongest position yeah. of those three as stand at the moment. Well, I mean, the hope is, from from a wider football perspective, was given, given Spain has been a, a, another another major league that has essentially followed the consequences of football's financial disparity, where, okay, it's had, it's been lucky enough to have two clubs that can that can win, and maybe a third, rather, rather than uh, just one. But the hope is, hope that maybe these kind of cracks just allow space for someone else to do something different or potentially an alternative title winner, even if it's not Atletico. Well, Atletico, <laughs> it should be one of their chances. Dotton, he's only gone and thrown Sevilla in there. Have you yeah, seen that? Yeah, he's just thrown Sevilla in there. And is it Sev- Villa or Sevilla? Sevilla. Sevilla. Sevilla to some. Sevilla to me, obviously. obviously. <laughs> Good to clarify. <laughs> and they do do a nice line in Oranges. Let's yeah, not forget yeah. that. But as we're talking about all of this, um, and how important was it that Miguel threw Sevilla in there? Out, out of interest, by the way, before I go on. If, if there's a year that they can do it, yeah. It's maybe this year this because year. Th- they are, they have got someone who can run a club way better yeah. than 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 anyone at either of the big three. Just in relation to Madrid, though, what is interesting about Madrid is that for a few years, um, they seem to have got their transfer business finally right, and they 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 concentrated on a policy where they were bringing in good players before the age of twenty three, mm. and it gave and, and throughout the back end of that of that period, they won four. Champions League titles in five years. It suddenly gave them this. They'd obviously had this this star first team, but then the the rest of the squad was a good block of kind of, of you know, you'd say kind of seven to eight out of ten players who had maybe more potential. But I suppose one of the issues now is that a lot of those players, Isco maybe being the, the key example, haven't quite kicked on to the level you'd expect to become the you know the really top class 
stars that Madrid should have. And it's maybe left him with a hangover of a problem in the sense of what you say about selling on these players or players that are maybe they could discard. Yeah, and I think that's right. Zidane is facing a completely different job to the job he had the first time, yeah. which was more of a sort of Del Bosque style, slightly sec- more sexy than Del Bosque, <laughs> a sort of um, caretaker the first time. Whereas the second time, especially, and he kind of should have sowed the seeds for it the first time round, and because they won the Champions League, it wasn't really over-examined. And in fact, the essence of Zidane as a coach is never really examined because the personality, yeah, because yeah. the aura is is so huge. But I think he got Gareth Bale off his wage bill at about the fiftieth attempt. Yeah, yeah, know, yeah. yeah. We'll, 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 we'll give him that. But I, I think so much of what his job is now is a developer of players, as as Miguel touched on. Can he do that? I think the jury's really, really yeah. out on that because what they need to do, they've they've got a lot of quality young players can he develop them to be as good as they can be when you're talking about developing players it's not just about developing 17 18 19 year olds it's about helping those in their early or mid-20s to get better yeah i mean you know that's sometimes something that's overlooked i think because of we live in the era of messi and ronaldo who should not be representative of anything apart from themselves they're freaks they're they're, they're not like anyone else we assume that if players haven't reached their footballing nirvana by the time they're 21, yeah. it's not happening, which is nonsense. And I think the fact that Isco, to go back to Isco, he's a really good example. Has Zidane was getting the best out of him when you get to Real Madrid winning in Cardiff in ni- 2017, uh, 2017 yeah, yeah. against Juventus. He's possibly their best player in that Champions League In fact, there was, the, there, was the, there was the big Bale-Isco debate for around that period. There was, wasn't, yeah. wasn't there. But how he's not developed from there. And Zidane has got to take at least a little bit of the responsibility from that. And then you look at, you know, Marco Asensio. We know he's still got a lot of promise, but a lot of it is still promise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you see... Is he the right coach to do do that? You see, what you've introduced is a dichotomy between um, running a club well, as you said, with Sevilla... With Sevilla, you said that they've got a chance because they're a well-run club. Now you're talking about um, a well-run team yeah that is different yeah. it's a slightly different yeah. thing I wonder which is the more well, Im- imper- the greater imperative well, for this season I, I, I would say actually if if there was any sort of I can't believe I'm going to say this if there was any sort of um, moral uh, morality play in football Sevilla should win the title by virtue of just being better run than all the other like, because in, in many ways they're actually examples to a lot of clubs better run club yeah but the issue, of course, is that, I mean, the fact they're well run, it's, it's all about finances. The issue is that there's no morality in football. Well, 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 <laughs> no well with that morality being connected to huge financial disparity. And the worry still is that no matter how well you're run, and despite the problems the big two have, the big two just have such a force of number, which is basically bigger squads, now just enough quality that they'll still kind of push themselves over the Elite line. talent will out. Yeah, thing. yeah, exactly. And, and yeah, yeah. And, and there's, there's almost a sense, and I really felt this last season, actually, there was a sense of basically Madrid winning it by default. Yeah. I, I not only went in that incredible run, but they went like, once again with that Madrid team under Zidane. They weren't exactly, you know, all that brilliant in that run. It's not but, fantasy yeah, football by yeah. any stretch of the it, it imagination. It's con- convincing. Yeah. But to go back to your point, Dutton, the fact is, if you have a well-run club, it makes it so much easier to run the team well. Mm. Whereas now, if if the club is in a situation where it can't spend any money, 
you need some sort of otherworldly effort from the coach, don't you? Yeah. To, to effectively use the resources that are at your disposal. So let's talk about what's impending for a lot of nations this weekend, which is uh, international games. And this is the Nations League games, isn't it, Andy? The Nations League, which has only started the other day. Very much like when you go to a gig, Dotton, you've got to stand through a poor quality support act first. (laughs) That was in the old days, pre-COVID days. Yeah, exactly. And and that's what these international friendlies are. Uh, You know, you look at the teams that have been put out by some nations so far experimental i guess is the kind way of 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 putting it and you know i'm not saying that portugal versus spain on 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 wednesday night didn't have its moments of course they they used it as a, a sort of um a sort of occasion as well to announce their co-candidacy for the the, the 2030 world cup which I think everyone in this room is certainly in favour of that. Would be a pretty yeah. enjoy- enjoyable <laughs> tournament, yeah. But I think that you know there there were some good moments in that. But these friendlies do seem like oh, they're just a bit of a waste of time. And I think especially when you look at the that's not the, the way Miguel sees it, by the way. And we'll come on to that in a moment. Well, I, th- I think especially the health situation at the moment, yeah, it feels you can argue whether international football generally is tenable at the moment yeah. and I, I think there's a big question over that but these these friendlies on one hand they're a massive inconvenience yeah. and they're a health and safety minefield on the other hand you look at and I said it on the ramble um, earlier you, you look at how stacked the programme is for the club season when else do national mm-hmm. coaches get to work yeah. with players well I think I think there's two there's a few things there first of all even though these are massive inconveniences and even though there is there is the huge, especially as cases rise around Europe or the world, um, the exact safety issue about playing these games. And really, like if you look at the case of Ireland, say they're in three different countries in the space of a week. Johnny declared an interest. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, but well, but you, just as an example, like it's it, it, it's remarkable that they're, they're they will be playing crossing three three different borders. Mm. But I mean, and the club game can complain all they want, or sorry, the major club game. But really, what what why these? There is an argument these are actually among the most important internationals will have. Because the income is so necessary to run yeah. grassroots in the club in so many countries, particularly outside the elite. So that 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 that, that is one reason they've pushed out. But and also, uh, from talking to someone in UEFA about a month ago, one of the reasons there's been an agreement to play these games is basically because UEFA and the federations bent over backwards for the clubs to move the Euros and allow the clubs to finish the club season. And I, I think that's a much bigger move than people politically. And, and logistically than people might have realised. I mean, I mean, even if it felt to many people that it was just a, it was a no-brainer to, to move the Euros, that doesn't mean it was a no-brainer to actually execute. Uh, mm. And I think that's why, that's why there's been a, you know, a bit of horse trading about this. I think maybe a bigger issue in internationals, if you, if you leave aside the very, very fair and pertinent questions over the logistics around these internationals in light of COVID, is I think the bigger issue of why exactly in a in a truncated like 
season like this, a truncated calendar, given how 2019-20 was pushed on, why is football so determined to get every single match played? I think that's where yes. I think that's where there should have been more give. Um, like uh, you could uh, you, a little bit more could have been done with European competition. Uh, you know, everyone's going on about the League Cup in England, um, but I, I think there could have been a bit more give from that perspective, rather than kind of you know just I suppose immediately looking to the internationals as the one that. That's it. But in saying all that, I think there is a very fair question about whether players should be crossing so many borders at this time. And playing three three matches. Yeah, yeah. It's a fair question, but the reality is that these, for what you call friendlies, Andy, is uh, are more, much more important with the smaller footballing nations. Surely they're not they're yeah. not just friendlies. And and you know what? Once you get past the friendlies, Dotton, so as you were saying, um, not just the Nations League games, but the Euro 2020 yeah. playoffs. I mean, these are absolutely huge matches, yeah. aren't, and, aren't they? And I, I, for, for, all the, for all the fixation it's going to be on friendlies tonight, like I, I'm going to England-Wales when what I would rather be doing is uh, watching Ireland-Slovakia. Um, hold but, on, but, hold on. We haven't got to game of the week yet. I, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> um, but, but, just, but, but I think, I mean, there's, there's eight games tonight and because they're basically, they're essentially semi-finals and they're, one, they're, they're, not, they're not two-legged. I think these, there's, there's going to be some brilliantly chaotic international football tonight. And I, the, the touchstone I always have as regards this is the last night of USA 94 qualifying. I think the date was November 13th when there was basically mayhem all over Europe. I think these eight games could be similar because they're... A, because just a very different... It's, it's just a one-off game to get another playoff to... to uh, to get to the Euros, so there's so much on that, and from an emotional perspective, and B because of the uh, how important it's going to be to federations to qualify for the Euros as well. Yeah, so there could be a seven like financially. There could be a seven two or a six one. I, I think there's going to be some exceptional games. I quite like the look of Norway. I mean, they're the, they're the team who are thinking ahead of their game against Serbia. Yeah, right. Well, stuff you guys. We really want this to happen because I think you, you look at what's happened to them over the last year with. Holland with Solot even coming coming to the fore in um, Turkey before he before he moved to Leipzig. When you look at Odegaard, they're in a position. If I was a Serbia player, and I'm not going to stereotype them as a team of old men, you might be holding the small of your back and going, oh, I don't really fancy chasing them around for... for, for, for <laughs> they will for run. Right. They've got engines on them, the Norwegians. Yeah, there's no, there's no doubt about it. But I, th- I think it's quite interesting to look at the teams that we perceive as the as the favourites as as well. And obviously it's, it's so hard to judge France off the back of their friendly against Ukraine because, you know, obviously eight Ukrainians pulled out because of uh, a COVID spread to the extent where their goalkeeper on the bench was 45-year-old Alexander Shovkovsky, who's the goalkeeping coach. You, earlier on, you said, don't dismiss players just when they get to a certain age, if they're not 21. Uh, yeah, but, and they yeah, but if they don't play best. anymore, Dotton. Yeah, <laughs> goalkeepers are different species. Also, also, I have absolutely no sympathy for Shovkovsky because once I remember I was covering a game out in um, Braga, between Braga and Dinamo Kiev, who's Shovkovsky's most famous for playing for. And I remember speaking to a, a couple of the Ukrainian journalists because uh, Dinamo were very different to Shakhtar in that Shakhtar had loads of Brazilians. Of course, I could talk to them, no problem. I didn't speak, still don't speak any Ukrainian. So um, I, I spoke to one of the travelling Ukrainian ju- journalists and go, is there any players who speak, you know, English or something that's not Ukrainian? 
And um, this guy goes to me, oh, Shovkovsky, he speaks, he speaks excellent English, grab him. And so I, I lent yeah. over in the in, in the mix zone when the players come out of the changing room to to, to speak to him, and um, I said, uh, "Alexander, have you got a minute?" And he goes, "I'm terribly sorry. <laughs> I'm afraid my standard of English is very poor, and I won't be able to help you." <laughs> in this like Mansfield Park voice, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, "That is outrageous." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but fair play to him; he, he did me up like a kipper. Yeah. I, I think you look at France and. You know they're, they're endlessly exciting. Yeah. Maybe not under Didier Deschamps as a coach. But maybe maybe that's the that's the touch. But but, but then uh, but just uh, you know, this is a bit of a tangent. But especially given the level we're talking about. But I, I, I must say, given the fact that in terms of application and I suppose quality of football and time they have, the club game is about fifteen years behind. Sorry, the international game is about fifteen years behind the club game. There is actually an argument that the best practice for international football is now a solid base and go from there. Especially, exactly. especially at the very top level, which is basically... After you play 60 games in a season, how else are you going to play? Yeah. I, yeah. I, I, you know, again, it was something we, we touched upon on the, on the ramble earlier. I think yeah. it's something that plays against England, the fact that they want to play in a Premier League way yeah, yeah. when it gets the game. You know, you're going to be knackered after like 65 I, I, minutes. Whereas if you just sit and play this more reactive style I mean Deschamps is always going to be criticised for this because of the sort of players he has and yeah, you know, yes, people, exactly. people want to see those players play but in fact the heart of that France team that wins the World Cup it's not Pogba um, it's, it's Griezmann and it's yeah, Luca yeah, Hernandez yeah, yeah. the players who well they're Atletico players we, and they played like Atletico yeah. for, for a lot of that World Cup and the other side of it I think maybe the sequence of domination by Spain and Germany maybe tricked us a little bit in terms of international football because, you know, it looked like, okay, as with the club game, that kind of, you know, um, possession pressing approach is now, this is the optimum, this, this is how you play. Mm. This, is, this is the optimum level of football. But the difference with Spain and Germany is they were basically based on two club sides, which gave them a cohesion that no other international side can match. And can the, I ask you actually, while we're on that then, Miguel, um, do you think Spain and Germany are genuine contenders going into Euro 2020? Because Spain, I could still be convinced, I think, and they, they play very well at the start of this friendly with, with, with Portugal. I thought they were terrific in the first half. But Germany, again, and you know, it's, it's hard to make hard and fast judgments uh, about a series of friendlies when we're in yeah. the situation that we're in and we have some absent players, et cetera, et cetera. But Germany, again, making tons of defensive mistakes but, against but, against Turkey. And I think, you know, it's, it's not about playing well, is it? It's, right, about, exactly. it's about getting the results exactly. in the tournament. I don't think Germany are anywhere near favourites for this tournament. Well, I think this is a very, that opens up a very interesting debate, actually, because I, I think... It, you stand back and particularly look at kind of European football at the club game of the past few years, and even the championship actually, Germanic pressing has become the most cutting edge element of modern football. It basically yeah. it basically runs the game now, but that pressing is based on the type of intensity and the type of cohesion and integration that's only possible at club level because the amount of time they have and how drilled they are Leipzig being the, or Liverpool being the, the classic examples so then you have all these you have Germany have basically produced a generation of players capable of this and I think suddenly after a little bit of a lean spell Germany has a lot of players coming through that are really exciting from that regard but then they go international, into an international team where they can't develop the same cohesion together especially when now they're all at different club sides all, all over Europe yeah 
So suddenly, what they're what they're best suited for, and what the country has done so well to develop, may not necessarily suit the national team to the optimum degree. And it's why I think you see so many defensive errors because it's it's basically like a club team done badly in the sense that you know yeah. when, when when a club team drops off at, from any sort of from their top level, suddenly they become prone to loads of mistakes because it's just they're they're so um they're so intense. Uh, but and it will naturally leave holes, but it's a calculated risk. Whereas when they're not quite on it, yeah, it would just leave more holes. I think that's almost that. That's why we see Germany as they are. And I and I do just when, when it comes right down to it in, in a tournament like that, I would I think Spain could be brilliant, but I think they're too light in con- in contrast to France and Germany as it stands are a bit too ragged. Now, of course, I mean the thing about international football is you know. It's it's only really what five six games to the Euro, so he's going to wear in a club game. That's <laughs> that's nothing. Yeah. But, but in international football, it's almost a year, and so much can change over that time. You see, you shouldn't dismiss international games as friendlies in the way that you did, <laughs> Andy Brassel. They're much more profound than that, as Miguel has so eloquently explained. Yeah, they have ramifications. <laughs> I, I think the fact that you're sitting in Marcus Bella's seat has had an effect on you. <laughs> We should also talk about what's going on in Italy. Um, We know Juve's issues and the problems and they're up against Napoli. What should we make of what's going on there, Miguel? Uh, I think this is one of the most interesting stories in Europe because it's going to be indicative of how... I think there's going to be a lot of similar examples of this. Well, of course, we should clarify first that this was the big match last Sunday. Meant to happen. Napoli told by their local health authority that they can't travel and they have to quarantine at their training ground. Juventus saying that's not how we read the rules and having this totally bizarre pantomime where they prepare for the match, pretend that it's happening. Their Twitter account tweets out the formation uh, and and the 11. They turn up to the stadium. These are pictures of our boys turning up at the stadium. Everyone's in the stand and on the the, the television feed. Look behind you. Somebody was shouting that. Exactly. Because on on the television feed, it it had Juventus versus Napoli, awaiting arrival of a way team. (laughs) It's it's total waiting for Godot. Like it. It's just not happening. That is basically just a case of Juventus want to kind of fulfil their interpretation of the rules to the letter of the law so they don't leave themselves open, isn't it? So, so they get yeah. their 3-0 win? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, that, that's right. Now, interestingly, because they disagree so fundamentally over the interpretation of, of the rule and where the where the regional authorities rule ties in with the, the national plan because like the it's league like an insurance the, company yeah, the, will we have to pay out or not that's, that's exactly it, of it. <laughs> that's exactly it because because the league have said um, well you, you only had two players testing positive, positive for COVID therefore by the rules you should be able to play on and obviously Juventus saying well our local health authority said <laughs> what your local health authority <laughs> said doesn't make any difference you're at the other end of the country <laughs> and so yeah, then you were this this situation where it looked like 
well, the Juventus were obviously pushing for the 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 three nil win, the 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 walkover. Now it's moved along a little bit, where the game looks like it will be played, but there's been the suggestion in various sections of the Italian media that Napoli might be docked a point for not coming. When as far as they're concerned, they weren't allowed to come. Now, some have suggested... It's going to end up in court this one. Oh, it definitely will. But some have suggested that Aurelio De Laurentiis, the president of Napoli, gave a call to the local health authorities saying, what are you saying? We can't go. Which is a lot different to the local authority saying to... Local, uh, well, the regional would... health authority saying... You can't, you can't go. Okay, we've obviously missed something along the way here. We understand why Juventus want the three points. Yes. Why did Napoli not want to face Juventus, and particularly at this time? Well, I think because of, you know, you look at the the, the, the players who were uh, ruled out from from going. It was uh, Elif Elmaz and uh, Piotr Zielinski. Players who are good players, but they, they could do without. I don't think they necessarily affect the result. And... Um, the sense was because Napoli had played Genoa the previous weekend. Now, Genoa had two cases who weren't able to play. They end up going to Napoli. They lose 6-0. And what, two days later, comes out that 16 people at Genoa have got it. Now, I think you have to bear that in mind. I, I, I think that's that's something. Just because they got tested and came back with a negative they're looking I think they're looking at the Genoa situation and thinking that could yeah be us and and that's fair enough isn't it yeah um, but I, I think that's why this is I mean whatever while the actual specific Juventus Napoli case has so many strands to make it so compelling but I think the wider story is it could be a bit of a case study for Europe because I think we're going to have this they obviously kind of the local authorities you know it's there's just different it's there are different protocols to it all, all around the continent. But the fundamental of it, which is, I suppose, like inevitably, some clubs are going to face a lot of cases, which has a knock-on effect. And I think it's going to throw... And, and this is why the earlier point about such a stacked calendar, I think, is all the more important. Because we're inevitably going to have a situation where... There are there are postponements which puts a real strain in the football. Calendar. I don't I don't think we're going to get to the point again where football is is cancelled or postponed because I think they've obviously they've proven they can get they can they have they have a base idea to get round the main problem and if protocols are followed the game can be played. Um, but I think we are going to see more postponements uh, and I think it's going to cause some political issues with the calendar. And maybe and a lot of headaches, maybe federations and clubs. Well, that's it, Miguel. The, the thing is, the, the the answer to it is quite obvious, and the answer is something we should have learnt from the original hiatus mm. going back to March. The fact is that football authorities get in an enormous panic when there's the potential of a postponement because there is simply no room in the calendar. Yeah. What we should have learnt from that as a football community is there is simply too much football. The way it has been approached by the football authorities all over Europe since is right. We've got to ram in everything. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but, which, which is. But do you, do you not yeah. feel this with the, with the, with this whole situation in general? Uh, it's basically been. I mean, as obviously as as, as, as massive and as as terrible as it's been for football, 
it did actually offer the opportunity to have a rethink. Now, while I do accept that the major pressure earlier on, early on was just to work out a way to get football back, mm. it does feel like a lot of potential lessons have already been squandered. Yes. Uh, and uh, uh, it, it, it's all been again a bit on the hoof rather than, and, 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 and trying to adjust things rather than taking the opportunity to look at you know, where we can address bigger issues in the game. And I I do wonder if what holds football generally back from dealing with that is the tribal nature of this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I think the Juventus-Napoli discussion is is a very good case in point, for example. In a common sense situation, they just say, right, we're in the time that we are, and Juventus go, yeah, let's play it another day. Yeah. But they decide to double down and go... Because they've right. got other issues, haven't yeah, they? And, they've and, got other issues. And the league, the, the league decide to double down mm. as, as well on it, which yeah. which is something I, I find very disappointing. I think the, the league yeah. have to be stronger here. Well, and, and again, I remember in, in March, April, the, the, the constant message was from like the top levels of UEFA and the top levels of the game was, well, one, one of the positives is it's actually brought the game together. And one of the examples given was how Infantino was willing to park his his big, grand and massively problematic idea of a Club World Cup for a year mm. to give the game space. Whereas it didn't take too much, too too long for suddenly all this spirit of cohesion to, as you say, kind of collapse into a lot of old, uh, old battlegrounds. Yeah, I'm not surprised to a certain extent, though. I'm not surprised because football Same. has consequences. Same. Football has consequences on both ends, you know. So if you postpone a game, like you've said, as a knock-on effect, but also if you reduce the number of games, there'll be teams, not least on the lower end, who think, well, hang on, we would have won that tournament if you hadn't cancelled it. Yeah. It's got consequences. The ball is round. Finally, guys, the moments that we all look forward to is hearing about your games of the week. Now, you will have come up with the thought of a great game that we can all watch and for free, most importantly. So don't take it down that cable route, please. If, if it, only it was possible to hear it for free. It, it, it's a bit difficult this week. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm going to go for Sunday night, 7.45, France versus Portugal. Hopefully, if everything goes well, it's a Nations League game that will be a rehearsal for the group game in Euro 2020. So we'll, we'll, we'll cross our fingers for that, which will be played in Budapest, I believe. Uh, but anyway, this this one's going to be in Paris. We talked about France and the depth they've got. It's also very interesting, and they won't play against Portugal, I don't think, but the team that played against um, Ukraine contained Usem Awar, who of course still belongs to Leon and Eduardo Camavinga, who still belongs to Ren. Um, Awa was excellent. Um, Camavinga got that opening goal with just an amazing over the shoulder finish, and it's attacking part of his game is something he's only developing at the moment. So I know I don't know. Part of me wonders whether these impertinent upstarts are joining the team and thinking, "Do you want us to play defensively? We ain't having that, DD." <laughs> I, 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 I don't know if that I, I, I don't know if that's the case, but the the fact that there's more yet more exciting um, attacking talent available or, or just talent generally available to France is 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 a real positive. We've seen um, Pumacano play the last couple of games as well, and then on Portugal's side, I mean they they were dreadful for the first half against Spain, much better after the break, and then you look at all those attacking options clearly. Cristiano Ronaldo's chasing Ali Dae's record. He's he's not 
giving up any minutes anytime soon. A Ranger friendly against Andorra. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll tell you what, ask England under 21s. There's no walk in the park anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, I, I think you, you look at the talent there and th- that's what's interesting when you contrast and compare Portugal and France. The fact that Didier Deschamps, it doesn't matter the amount of talent. They're going to play a certain mm. way. Whereas with Portugal, who very much played a certain way to win Euro 2016 mm. under Fernando Santos, people thought he couldn't be that guy that, say, Zidane needs to be in integrating more exciting young players. Yeah. He's actually done that very, very well. And I, I, I remember thinking, I was at that Euro 2016 final. I remember thinking, like, again, this is, this is, this is a bit. Greece like this is a dull Portuguese team to win but again it comes back to the point that if you want to succeed in international football it looks like this is this may be the model now keep yeah. it, keep, I mean it's, it's quite old fashioned but in a term keep, keep it tight work your way through and, and then re- rely on a bit of uh, individual inspiration at the a other of, end a bit of Ed Air magic makes a bit of Ed Air magic yeah, yeah I think you've already given away to a certain extent what your game of the week is going to be Miguel but uh, surprise us well <laughs> I, 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 would, I would genuinely pick any of the eight uh, playoff semi-finals tonight because I think that these are games that really mean something basically and uh, and that significance I think is going to bring out a lot of very entertaining football if uh, very painful football for some for those that miss out uh, in terms of the most glamorous most glamorous fixture you'd probably go Norway-Serbia given there's so much young talent in that Norway side particularly Haaland uh, but I suppose I'm going to let um, <laughs> my I'm going to let a little bit of bias come into it because I'm, hot dude yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go for Slovakia, Ireland, um, as you can tell from the accent. But uh, but from I mean, you're Slovakian. <laughs> uh, well, Slovakia have actually had. I mean, there's an interesting build up to, to this in the sense that Ireland are a country now. Obviously, there's been a certain perception of Irish football for 20 years or 30 years, really, going back to someone who's we talked about so much over the past few months, Jack Charlton. Um, and Stephen Kenny has come in there and he's basically, I mean, you, you could say he's a Southgate figure in the sense that he's he's come through the U, the, it's, it's basically, it's a very continental model of international management in that it's someone who's, who's just t- taken on the senior job from one of the underage jobs, under 21, mm. where he did very well. And he, he has had success in Irish football, even though there's been a debate in Ireland about as well about how much that matters when you're kind of dealing with potentially a lot of Premier League players. But also, his one of his main concerns has been essentially transforming the identity of Irish football and trying to instill what would be a modern, expansive approach. Uh, but of course, that takes a lot more than two games, which is what he's all, which is what, all that he's had so far two Nations League games where they got one goal and it was a classic Shane Duffy header. Uh, and so, so and suddenly he's prematurely been thrust into a situation where he has this playoff against Slovakia that is actually quite, usually important to Irish football in terms of the finances, not least because uh, four of the games are in Dublin in Euro, 20, yeah, Euro 2020, which is such a massive opportunity. But of course, Kenny wasn't meant to be in charge of this game at all. It was meant to be Mick McCarthy but that was uh, COVID complicated that because McCarthy's uh, contract initially ran to what was supposed to be the end of the year 2020 campaign, but that ended up being a date and time rather than an actual campaign. Uh, so the big question is whether Ireland are ready or how compromised maybe Kenny's football has to be. I mean, he's more pragmatic than often made out, but they've been handed an opportunity. Like a, Slo- a Slovakia team that is probably at the moment in a better place than Ireland, just about. But they've had a huge loss now and they've lost Scrinia to COVID. Um, 
So I think it's one of many usually compelling games tonight. Gentlemen, thank you. This was a Stakhanov production and part of the Acast Creative Network.